but Lewis kind of came back at the end and it kind of ebbed and flowed really well that year, but that's so rare to see. He clearly seems to be somebody who's well-respected and his opinions matter um, because it, it clearly has moved the needle. But then Lewis Hamilton coming in as this incredibly talented, probably the best rookie F1 that's seen for, you know, decades. I think he's been watching Austin Powers because there's a movie, <laughs> isn't there? And Austin Powers by his mojo. I'm not sure if that's quite the same mojo he's talking about. I hope um, not. Welcome back to Unlapped, Katie George, Lawrence Edmondson, and Nate Saunders back with you for another week of painfully waiting for a race and Grand Prix to take place. But in the meantime, during this break, we did get to sit down with Haas team principal Gunther Steiner last week. So if you missed it, go back into the Unlapped archives and give it a listen because it was a great conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And as you would imagine, when you have a guest on, you can't debrief about the guest because they're still sitting next to you or they're still on the Zoom chat. So I would ask the two of you, Nate and Lawrence, just what your takeaways were and, and what you made of our conversation that we had with Gunther Steiner. I think I think Gunther would have actually quite enjoyed us debriefing about him when he was there. He's that kind of guy, isn't he? <laughs> um, no, I really, I, I really enjoyed it. I think he, you know, he's a great person to chat to. And um, I think the great thing with Gunther Steiner is, is that you know, there's always questions about Drive to Survive, how, how authentic people are when they're on it, you know, whether they play up to the cameras. But with Gunther, you just get the impression, don't you, that that is that is exactly who he is. You know, the guy you see on TV, he's very similar to you know how he how he was with us. He's he's open to talk about anything. Um, just yeah, really really engaging guy to talk to, and um, you can totally see, can't you, when you're talking to him? It must be fun to to a degree working for him. But I think you can see why away from the cameras, he gets you know the the team are so rallied around him because I think he'd be a great person to work for. So yeah, had a great time doing it, and um, hopefully we can get him back on again soon. He did seem he seemed to enjoy himself as well, which is a great thing. Yeah, he's a real straight talker, isn't he? I mean, mm -hmm. there'll be areas which he can't go into and he'll stop short of. And we see that in media sessions all the time when we're talking to him at races. But um, he is just very straight. And, you know, if, if one of our questions was a bit off, I think he kind of let us know, which is always quite reassuring as journalists as well, um, to keep you on the right <laughs> track. But yeah, he's um, he's fantastic. So yeah, hopefully we'll get him back on. Um, uh, he also talks about his love of wine, didn't he? So maybe we can tempt mm. him back on with a glass of wine if we meet him in person. We but have a verbal agreement, at least at this point. He agreed yeah. at the end that he would come back on at some point. So we can hold him to that. And not Carolinian wine as well, which, uh, I mean, I, I didn't associate Carolina with wine, but now I know, Katie, for a fact that it's, that's not what it's known for. Um, yeah, the, the wide-ranging mountain ranges and soil yeah. that they have in North Carolina and the yeah. humidity has I to mean, be that's what That's what in the wine. UK we think of when we think of Carolina. So <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I thought it was interesting because... That could turn gimmicky in a conversation with him because there are so many viral moments. There are such great lines that he has that people have coined and they love him for the moments on Drive to Survive. But, you know, we had some fun with him, certainly. But I also thought it came across his passion for his job, his main role being team principal at Haas. And so, you know, I thought that the conversation was very balanced. And so I enjoyed having some fun with him, like you see on Drive to Survive, which is very real and genuine, but also at the end of the day, talking about the things that matter to him. Um, and, and he clearly seems to be a mover and shaker, you know, among the team principals. You know, we we had that conversation about the sprint weekend and the format changing. And he clearly seems to be somebody who's well-respected and his opinions matter um, because it, it clearly has moved the needle um, based on what we're expecting of Baku. Well, he's such an engaging person, isn't he? So if, mm -hmm. if Gunter comes up with an idea, it's certainly going to get listened to. And I think um, there's one of those things as well. When you look at the political landscape in Formula One, you have the real 
big teams, you know, Mercedes, Red Bull, Ferrari, and they're so competitive with each other that I think sometimes they really don't trust each other. Even if one of them comes up with a good idea, the other one will say no just for the sake of it. Whereas mm-hmm. with someone like Gunther, you know, they're very closely tied to Ferrari, but I feel like they're less of a threat to a number of teams and, and the way they position themselves as well. Uh, I think Gunther's often looking at what's just good for the sport and a bit of common sense, especially from a team that's been through some pretty rough years where it's been right on the edge of whether it's worth continuing or not, or whether it's owner Gene Haas would look at potential options of selling it. So, you know, everything he says, I think has an element of common sense to it because it comes from a position of often survival as drive to survive or surviving to drive his (laughs) book suggests, Um, uh, you know, rather than this position of trying to get what's best for each individual team. So I think that's why he's he's so well respected in the paddock as well. And, on that point as well, which is interesting, um, spoke to him. We had a little breakfast with, you know, a little media breakfast with him in Bahrain after testing. And um, one of the things he talked about was how <clears throat> someone said, you know, is is Ferrari the dream job for you as well? It's always talked mm. about as the dream job. And he said, honestly, like at this point in his career, he's not really that fussed about it. He said maybe 20 years ago it would have been. But I think he loves that position he's in. You know, he's he's kind of a he's the the, the classic proverbial big fish in small pond, isn't he? Where he mm. he is he is the voice of that team. And he can he can go and have a conversation with Gene Haas and then that's it. You know, whereas if you're kind of head of Ferrari or head of one of those big teams, you've got a board to answer to. You've got, you know, you've got all these different shareholders and sponsors and stuff. Not that Haas don't have those sponsors, but it's such a small operation. His influence and power in there is actually pretty big. So I think it suits him to the ground. It would be it would be weird, wouldn't it, if he was the boss of a big team. I'm not sure how that would go. I don't know whether it would work so well. Uh, you know, maybe he'd have to rein it in a bit. I don't, or, you know, maybe it just wouldn't work. So I think he's in the perfect spot. Yeah, it certainly seems to be a great match for now. And we'll see, obviously, if something were to change down the road. But Lawrence, you bring up an interesting point. What's good for the sport, right? And I don't know how you two feel, but gosh, this has felt like a really, really long break in between races. And I know it wasn't certainly designed to be this way. And hopefully this is just a one-off. But the way that this break has played out, has this been good for the sport? What's this process been like for, for teams and drivers? I think there's a few people who have enjoyed a bit of time off, but I'm not sure that's good for the sport necessarily. So, yeah, I I think uh, the season has lost a bit of its momentum. I mean, unfortunately, if you're a relatively neutral fan, if basically you're not a Red Bull or a Slappen fan, it's looking one-sided anyway. But um, yeah, I think it's always a bit strange when you have a break like this. Um, The the only good thing, I think... uh, potentially for the rest of this season and the competitive order is that the teams haven't been put on hold. So usually when we have a break like this during the summer, uh, there's an enforced two week shutdown where the factory has to stop, uh, you know, working essentially. So they can't produce any parts. They can't continue designing parts that hasn't been enforced during this break. This break only exists, like you said, because of the Chinese Grand Prix uh, being taken off the calendar relatively late in the process. So all the teams have continued to have their design offices working on all the information that they got from the test, the first three races, uh, you know, there's lots of data that they would have got there, lots of new things they would have learned about their car that they can then turn into performance when they come back. So the only good thing I think is that we might get to Baku and Miami. We have two races back to back uh, there and we could have a slightly different order. We could have teams making a bit of a step, uh, big upgrades coming. We, know that McLaren have a big upgrade planned for Baku. That's going to be key to their season. So there's that element. They've had a little bit more time to work on it. Mercedes are targeting Imola, which is 
in three races time so that you know it to put a positive spin on it uh we might get a slightly different order when we come back i'd be surprised if anyone beats red bull but um yeah <laughs> the, the, there is some positive to it and i think hopefully most people who are fans of f1 won't have just forgotten the sport exists in the three or four weeks been away they'll be kind of more excited when it comes back on their tv screens in baku which is a great place and as we were talking about gunter it's a sprint race so what better way mm-hmm. to get back into it so I, I I totally agree with um with you about the it can be weird for a neutral, but I actually think the anticipation that a three week gap kind of builds is good, uh, mm. and I know we've not had the most exciting season, but I mean it wasn't uncommon you know when when I was younger for example that there would be three weeks between some races. I think when Lewis won in two thousand eight, I'm pretty sure there was a three week gap before the Brazilian Grand Prix. I think that was just the scheduling of it. And you just sat there and you were just waiting and waiting and waiting. Maybe this season isn't the best one for that because as Lawrence said, it's very one-sided and there's not really much anticipation. You're just like, well, is Max going to win by 10 seconds or 20 seconds this weekend? But um, in a season so long, I think it stands out. I think it probably would have it would have been a bit more impactful if it had been like a month or two later. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you know, kind of, I guess, have, you know, blocks of six or seven races and then a little, a little break. Um but I think with the way the calendar's going, you've got to have some time off. You can't just have relentless racing. Um, but um, but yeah, to go back to Baku is a great place to go back to, like Lawrence said. Um, usually we kind of, everyone just expects there to be carnage there every week. Uh, even though it's kind of weird, isn't it, Lawrence? Like it's it's every other year, more or less, that, that there seems to be a crazy Baku race. It's like crazy race that everyone kind of reins it in. So I don't know whether sprint race, they're just going to be super, super safe or whether everyone's just going to lose their minds again like they did. Uh, I can't remember the last nuts back in race but i guess it was when max went off and then lewis went off at turn one at the restart um which was 21 yeah. wasn't it yeah so yeah it often needs a catalyst something to happen mm. uh just to get things kicked off you know usually sometimes it's been a tire failure uh you know we saw that in 2021 uh with lance Stroll and then max later in the race and so there's usually something that just needs to spark it off and then you get a great race but there's never a guarantee of that, of course, because everyone's trying to keep it sensible. But yeah, I think we're essentially one and a third races, which is what we have with a sprint race. You get an extra third of racing uh, on top, then there's plenty of potential for, for things to go wrong. And if you are missing F1, we should also say that uh, if my calculation is right, we've got five races in six weeks coming up because we've got mm-hmm. um, uh, Baku, Miami, then one week break, and then Imola, Monaco, Spain. So big variation of different types of tracks and um yeah lots of racing to get stuck into so if you're missing it, it you won't be missing it for long and it's 12 Ooh. between now and the end of july as well if you want to look at it that way so you know there's there is loads to come well it's in a little bit of news along those lines because i don't foresee us having a break like this ever again if the rumors are true and they continue just to add more and more races to every single weekend it seems rumors are that liberty and dominicale stefano dominicale are thinking about possibly expanding the F1 calendar, which means the two of you are going to be a little bit busier um, on the road, possibly as early as 2024. Next season, uh, apparently a proposal has already been sent to teams um, and Dominicale wants you know the season to expand to 25 races. Um, we had a conversation with Gunther Steiner about is, is there a world where the sport grows too fast or adds too many races to the calendar? Um, I'm just curious your thoughts on, A, is this true? I, I quote it as rumors at the moment, um, but you know, could you foresee us having 25 races in 2024? Yeah, for a while they've been talking about 25 races as as their target. I think that's the limit they can go to under the current agreement. 
Um, and of course, if we'd had China this weekend or just a replacement race, we would have been at 24 already this year. So um, it's not beyond the, the runs possibility. Uh, there's still a very fragile hope that um, F1 might be able to race in South Africa at some point. It doesn't seem very likely at all. But um, that was one of the ones which was being slated. But there, there are so many tracks that are and venues that are willing to get involved, want to get involved. Um, you know, there's talk of uh, a race in Madrid, uh, you know, coming in that would probably just replace Barcelona. But even then, you know, it's just this exam- these examples of their interest being there. We constantly get these stories about a London Grand Prix. And uh, <laughs> we, uh, we talked about that on previous podcasts and why it probably won't happen. But, um, you know, they're, 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 they can easily get 25 races if they want to. Uh, and of course, the more races you have, the more money you generate because each of those races is paying a sanctioning fee to Formula One. And of course, you then sell a TV package to uh, the good broadcasters around the world uh, that has 25 races instead of 23. So, you know, more uh, more races, more content for, uh, for it to ship out. And, you know, that's, that's why the teams are often uh, very receptive to these uh, calendar extensions because ultimately the more money Formula One makes, uh, the bigger a slice there is for them at the end of the year when when F1's revenues get shared off between the teams and of course F1 shareholders. Um and so yeah it's um th- there's very rarely any pushback. Uh the pushback tends to come from the people on the ground doing the jobs, the mechanics, the ones flying economy, all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um there's often questions about is it sensible, is it realistic to have these these long calendars. Um, I think one potential solution, if if we are going to 25 and there's not really much anyone can do about it, is to um, more successfully clump some of the races together so that the travel demands aren't quite as crazy as they are now. I mean, I'm really not looking forward to my flight from Baku to Miami in a couple of weeks' time, uh, which takes off at 3.45 a.m. in Baku and uh, lands at about 5 o'clock p.m. in Miami via Doha and Qatar and you know stuff like that yeah it's just you know it, not it, sustainable. it's sustainable it's not really sustainable uh in every sense of the word sustainable either it's not great for the environment to be shipping or not shipping but flying all these people around around the world so um all of that has to be taken into consideration but as is almost always the case in Formula One money will will, will be the thing that decides that and if there's more money on the table from these venues then I think we'll get to 25 pretty quickly in the next year couple mm-hmm. of years and then, of course, when the next agreement, you know, when it comes to negotiate the Concord agreement again, does that 25 go up again? Because the teams will look at it and say, well, is there more money to be made? So I feel like um, it's obviously great for for F1, but it is a bit, you look at it and you wonder, I mean, I think what Gunther said on that was quite interesting, wasn't it? He said, you know, you don't want to, you want to consolidate what you have now, you know, when, you, when you're growing this big, you want to make sure that you're, you know, you're kind of... You're making sure the good times, you, the good times don't last forever. So, be interesting to see what happens. But um, there's some pretty cool venues that are pushing to come in. But um, yeah, you just wonder where are they going to put all this stuff? <laughs> you know, the right. season's going to start earlier and finish later, um, which would be great if <clears throat> if you have a really open championship. I always say this: a long calendar in 21, a long calendar was great because it gave it gave Lewis that chance to fight back at the end of the season. You know, Max might have won it, you know, with a few races to spare. Um, but Lewis kind of came back at the end and it kind of ebbed and flowed really well that year, but that's so rare to see. So what you end up getting if you have a dominant car is it's just, it means more races for the dominant team to win. So I think that's got to be, you know, top of mind as well. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. 
eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. I always think that these lulls are um, fascinating because we cling to any scrap of news or quote that comes out um, and it becomes obviously a very big deal and it gets legs because we're obviously waiting for something new to happen, i.e. a race. And uh, a quote that has gained a lot of traction um, as of late is something that was a comment made by Fernando Alonso, um, and it had to do with Lewis Hamilton. He said that, quote, it would be nice to end our careers together. I'd love that. And obviously now people's heads are swirling as um, they should be. Lawrence, I'll start with you. What did you make of Fernando Alonso's quick little quip there about Lewis Hamilton? Um, yeah, Fernando always has a knack of saying the right thing at the right time, doesn't he? So he was talking to the Daily Mail, which is obviously a big British publication uh, that writes sorts of headlines around Lewis Hamilton over the years. So, um, yeah, he I, I think he knew he was uh, onto a winner there with that readership. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't doubt it either. You know, they did have this very fractious year together. Lewis Hamilton's first year in the sport, 2007, uh, Fernando Alonso's first year after winning two world championships consecutively. And uh, the mix of that, basically, Fernando believing, you know, that he should have been the number one driver in the team and kind of, well, according to some sources, being, being told as much by McLaren. But then Lewis Hamilton coming in as this incredibly talented, probably the best rookie F1 had seen for, you know, decades um, and uh, able to, to challenge him. That created issues between the two of them. Fernando and Lewis has said this as well. Okay, so Fernando has said that you know a lot of that is down to the management of of that situation. Again, he believed that he was the number one driver, and in reality, he wasn't. Uh, but both drivers have said that they don't, they never really held a grudge with each other. You know, once they started talking about it several years later, and if you see Fernando and Lewis together now, they're not they're not enemies still. You know, they they don't hate each other. So I think they they could be teammates again and. Being that bit older, I think it would be a fascinating dynamic. And um, I think for Fernando, uh, I, I can see why he'd want it as well, because I've no doubt that Fernando in his heart of hearts believes he can beat Lewis because for you know obvious reasons, Fernando Alonso will believe that he's the best driver in the world. And so if he could then beat Lewis Hamilton, seven-time world champion in equal machinery, it goes some way to kind of um, vindicating his belief that 
he's much more than a two-time world champion, which is what the record books say, and is actually, you know, uh, worthy of, of many more championships. The reality of any of this happening is is, is quite mm-hmm. a different uh, <laughs> proposition, I think, given the driver market and where everyone is. But um, maybe I'll let Nate speak to that side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it would be amazing. Um, but it is difficult to see where that would be. You know, they're both, I, I think, running out of years to make this happen. You probably think Fernando's probably signed his last F1 contract, probably, the three-year deal he's on currently. Although, you know, if Aston, if Aston are fighting for championships at the end of that contract, there's absolutely no way he doesn't sign a new deal if presented to him. Um, but I think them ending up at the same place would be fascinating because either, either Mercedes would have to get rid of George Russell or Lawrence Stroll would have to get rid of his son from Aston Martin. So those two things see, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not saying George Russell's a son to Toto Wolf, but they're pretty close. You know, it's like they they, are. There's, there's a real close bond that's been built there, you know, for over years. So that would, it would be quite remarkable if they ended up together because you can't really see them going to other teams. I don't think Alonso is ever going to go back to a place like Ferrari. You know, he's very much pretty much in the last place he could probably race. So, yeah, I mean, if if it did happen, it, it would have followed a monumental breakup of some kind, you know. Uh, I, I, so I feel like it would be an amazing story. Um, but it's, yeah, it's very difficult to see. I mean, those are probably the two most unlikely things we'll see. George Russell leaving Mercedes. Um, certainly, I mean, unless it's of his own volition, I mean, you know, being forced out or even more unlikely is Lawrence Stroll getting rid of Lance at any point. Um but yeah, again for obvious reasons. So yeah, hate to hate to be the party pooper there, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure we'll see that. I think Hear the, me the, out. Oh no, go on, Katie. Hear maybe, me out, real Maybe quick. Audi though. You yeah, anyway, sorry, go on. And again, just for all those listening and watching, this is purely a brain exercise for the three of us here. But hear me out. I actually think that the chances of Stroll saying, Hey, Lance we're going to take your seat and give it to a seven-time world champion and have a driver lineup of Fernando Alonso and Lewis Hamilton. I think the chances of that happening are higher, actually, than possibly Mm. Mercedes parting ways with George Russell. I think that you could see Stroll decide, hey, let's secure a seat for Lance maybe elsewhere, right, if there is a possibility Mm. there. Or Lance also understanding, hey, we've now created a machine that's going to compete and contend, like – I think as a driver, obviously you are ultra competitive, but I think as if I were Lance Stroll, I would understand that Lewis Hamilton is a more capable driver than I am at this point of my career, right? I think we could all agree that Lance Stroll would be realistic in that way. I could I could see Lawrence being shrewd. I mean, he's a billionaire for a reason. Like you have to make shrewd decisions to get to the top of where you are economically. And he clearly wants to win. He's given all of his resources to Aston Martin to put them in a position to succeed. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that he would possibly go there if the option presented itself. Casey, have you been watching Succession lately? Yeah, feels, like, feels like you have. <laughs> but but I mean, one one if we're doing a brain exercise, I mean, you could see a situation where you know, obviously Lawrence Stroll and Toto Wolff, you know, it's, there's a Mercedes relationship there. Mm-hmm. Does does uh, Lawrence turn around to to Toto and say, "Look, let's swap. I'll give you Lance." You know, he's 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 proven this year that he's, he's he's fairly quick. I don't know whether Lance for Lewis is a fair trade. I think Bill Barnwell on ESPN would grade that pretty low from Mercedes' point of view if he made that trade. Um, but, you know, maybe that could happen. I don't know. But I think you're right. If, if he could secure a seat somewhere else for Lance, then maybe he'd do that. Um, but, yeah, if, if, if he had the chance to do it, I think that's when it would become really interesting. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, he he's he's got that kind of Bond villain streak to him, yes, hasn't right? he? Lawrence Stroll. So yeah, I think um, yeah, I think we're setting up like a, a new season of Succession as well, though. I like it. Lawrence, uh, are we off our rocker? Uh, I I think there's a more obvious way to it because I think the the big issue here is that Lewis isn't going to leave Mercedes because mm. he's so tied in there with a number of other things and he's got no desire to go anywhere after that. So. The thing then is whether Aston Martin becomes so competitive that when George Russell's contract comes up, they go sniffing around George, get him in, and then Fernando's a free agent. He comes in alongside Lewis at Mercedes for one year because Mercedes are a bit caught short with uh, no one to um, to fill that void until one of mm. their young go-karters come through, like Kimi Antonelli, who's just making his way up into uh, junior series, looks incredibly good. And then you'd have a couple of years of, of Lewis and Fernando together. But the, the big issue for any team, if they did get Lewis and Fernando together, is that they've got two drivers right at the very end of their career. And all teams will look to have really, you know, a, a longer term prospect um, in alongside a, a big name, just because you want to make sure that you don't get to the end of a season and both decide to retire and you're left with zero drivers. So I, I think it's very unlikely, but... You know, that, that's the only way I could see it is actually George wanting to make a move if, let's say, it doesn't happen with Mercedes to the end of his mm. contract and uh, or he's able to get out of his contract and Fernando goes the other way. I like it. Hypotheticals, people. Hypotheticals. We're just working through it. Just Honestly, hypotheticals, when, when you actually get into them, they become so fun because then then yeah. you start thinking, well, in, the, in this scenario, what happens with Lando? Are they just overlooking Lando and suddenly they're like, I'd rather have a 40-something Fernando Alonso over Lando. So, um, yeah, very interesting stuff. It's almost the butterfly effect, right? The dominoes and how yeah. it shapes a sport and and the history of it based on the moves that we've seen in the past. Something else that obviously has been a big talking point uh, is the FIA dismissing Ferrari's request to review Carlos Sainz's penalty. Uh, for a refresher, Lawrence, would you try to take us through what exactly happened on track and why Ferrari felt like the penalty should be reviewed? Yeah, so let's go back to that last proper restart of the Australian Grand Prix. Uh, it was absolute carnage. Uh, two Alpine drivers drove each other into the wall. But just ahead of that, um, Carlos Sainz missed his breaking point or left his breaking too late considering how cold the tyres were, ploughed into Fernando Alonso, spun the Aston Martin round and um, got a penalty for it, a five-second penalty. Now, when they reset the grid for the final restart, which ended under the safety car, so it wasn't really a proper restart, um, Carlos Sainz was in fourth place. Uh, Fernando Alonso was put back up to third because they took the same order as was on the grid. And uh, so with a five-second penalty and all the cars bunched together, going across the line together as if behind the safety car, um, Carlos dropped... Uh, from fourth place all the way to last, which I think was 12, there's only 12 cars left, and um, lost all points and all the things that he'd been working for very hard in that race and actually done a very good job in that race. So he was very upset um, because not only did he think that uh, given the circumstances, it was the first lap, sometimes the stewards are a bit more lenient on the first lap, and um, also uh, given the a five-second penalty, which is the smallest of the penalties the uh, stewards can give out in race, it goes like five second, 10 second, and then you get into um, much longer kind of stop-go penalties and stuff at pit stops. Um, they felt, he felt that given that, uh, it's completely unfair that he dropped from fourth to 12, whereas in a normal race, a five-second penalty might not even drop you one position, but it typically will drop you maybe one or something at the end. So he was very upset. And the other thing he was upset about is that he didn't get to voice any of these concerns or his opinion of, of what happened in the accident to the stewards, which 
never happens when the stewards make an in-race penalty. But given this was so close towards the end of the race, arguably could have happened. Uh, it did happen with the two Alpine drivers. They both got to go and talk to the stewards about what happened. And in the end, the stewards decided no penalty in that case. Um, but that was slightly different in that both cars were taken out in that moment. And therefore, that always becomes a post-race investigation because, uh, one, both the drivers are out of the race, so it's not going to impact it anyway. What you're looking at then is a grid penalty for future races. So there was a difference there. That's why that, that didn't get investigated. Perhaps the strangest one, although we won't dwell on this too long, is that Logan Sargent went straight into the back of Nick DeVries, took him out at Turn 1, and that didn't get investigated at all. But let's just put that aside um, for now. <laughs> okay. And uh, and so we, we end the race. Carlos Sainz uh, finishes last of the runners, no points. And Ferrari decide that they will um, request a review of, of this. So when a team decides that, you don't immediately get the stewards back together and go through everything again with Carlos uh, pushing his point forward. What you have to do is put forward um, new information, which is new in that it wasn't available to the stewards when they made their decision and relevant. And this is the key bit, you know, what they decide is relevant is is, is quite a high bar. Um and so uh, they did this, Ferrari, they, they came and they said, look, we've got telemetry from Carlos's car that you may not have had. In fact, the stewards had quite a lot of that, but they had a little bit of extra stuff there. Uh, as A statement from Carlos Science himself and uh, Ferrari felt this was enough to reopen the investigation and, uh, and, and perhaps get a different conclusion, perhaps change the result of the race to remove the five second penalty and put Carlos back up to fourth. Uh, stewards same stewards that made the original decision turned around and said none of this is uh some of it is new but none of it is relevant enough to to change the opinion that we had in the first place uh and so they uh they threw out and said we'll dismiss this whole case of coming forward and ferrari look a little bit uh yeah a, a little bit silly here i think you know it's it's it hasn't got them anywhere. It was quite clear to everyone because we've had a number of these situations in the past that it's very rare the stewards will open up, um, reopen an investigation unless there is something really, uh, you know, brand new that was just not available to them at the time and completely changes how they would view it. Um, and it was quite clear that Ferrari weren't going to have anything along those lines. However, Ferrari have now used it a bit. They've put out a statement afterwards to say, well, we need to get all the teams together and the FAA and Formula One and discuss this whole process. And um, it will be interesting to see what comes out of those discussions because I think the majority of people in F1 will probably say, look, it was unfortunate that the five-second penalty was um, had such a big impact on his result, but all the processes were followed. He did take someone out on the first lap, you know, at what point do you just start turning a blind eye because, you know, it seems a bit unfair at the time. It, you've got to have rules in place and you've got to have driving standards in place. And <clears throat> ultimately, Carlos Sainz was one of a number of drivers who made a mistake at that first corner, but there were mm. also a lot of drivers that didn't make a mistake at the first corner. So, you know, it's really on science and as painful as it is, uh, I, I think uh, the right decisions have been made and um, he'll just have to try and regroup and do better in Baku. And yeah, we just, very well said. I very mean, well said. that was a lot of shit to get through. If <laughs> yeah, you remember yeah. the Australian yeah. Grand Prix yeah. decades I, ago. I was learning. I was relearning all of that as it was coming coming up. I mean, well, another way to look at it as well is that um, the other two drivers that made a mistake that Lawrence mentioned, their race ended because of their mistake. So mm-hmm. Sainz's mistake did have quite a big punishment in the end. You know, he was he was lucky that that didn't, you know, that, that, that after spinning uh, Fernando, you know, he carried on without any damage. So 
I think you look at it and you think, I know that it, those other guys should have had penalties, but their penalty was probably the fact that they ended, you know, their races ended. Wasn't great for Nick De Vries or Esteban Ocon because their races ended as well. Um, but yeah, that was what well undo. That was pretty, pretty comprehensive. I'm, I'm impressed. Um, didn't they say, I, 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 looking over it, didn't they say one of the things they, they, they mentioned the angle of the sun and they said that this needed to be taken into account. And then the stewards said, well, that was the same for, for all the drivers there. So I feel I like sometimes think, yeah. in those, in those cases, you can end up just looking, you can look kind of like, like Lawrence said, it doesn't look great when a team brings that, you know, it's like, is this really something you're bringing to the table to, to try and, uh, have looked at? So that was part of science's statement was the, yeah, sorry, the, yeah. the, the tires were cold and the sun was low and it's like, well, yes, but that was same for everyone. And, you know, you guys are the best drivers in the world. So, mm. uh, as difficult as it is driving into the sun, you know, you have to adapt, uh, to all of that. And, um, you know, we've had a number of races finishing with, uh, sunsets in Albert Park before and not every time mm. has, has someone made a mistake. So, um, there's that. The only thing I did leave off actually was the other, the third thing that uh, Ferrari oh, brought. How could you forget? As, <laughs> as, as what they felt was new and relevant information was the comments of other drivers to the media after the race about how it was indeed quite cold and the sun was quite low. But as mentioned before, and as the stewards pointed out, a lot of those drivers didn't have have the same issues. And this is just part of Formula One racing, you know it is just the nature that sometimes track conditions will change and uh, drivers have to adapt. If it starts raining midway for a race and someone plows into someone else, they can't say, well, you know, what about the rain that, that you know, the rain made me do it. It just doesn't work like that. It's um, they've got to adapt to the conditions they're in. Carnage should be used more by Americans. Just going to throw that out there. We should put that into our vocabulary a little bit more often. Great word. I do wonder when it comes to Carlos signs, if this, three-week hiatus helps or hurts him, right? Like when you're an athlete, you want to go back to the track. You want to drive again, right? To either right the wrong or, you know, gain momentum, continue to build off of a great performance. Same for, you know, any other sport. For him, do you think that three weeks away is is helpful for his psyche and, and his mental space? Or do you think that he's been sitting there replaying this over and over and over again as they've obviously clamored for this review? And do you think it, it possibly impacts his racing moving forward? Yeah, if he's been stewing over it for for two and a bit weeks now, you can't imagine it's going to be that good. And you know, as we mentioned with the sprint race, I feel like you need to go into that race with quite a clear head. Um, I don't know really. I think science is a, science is. We've talked about science a bit, haven't we? But he's kind of a fascinating driver, frustrating driver as well because he seems to have he'll have a good race, really good races every so often, and then you'll see two or three races where he's he's just not really there. So. I wonder why that is with him. You know, I wonder if that comes down to, you know, a mental approach or just the way, you know, the confidence thing or whatever it is. So it did feel like, I mean, I think one of the reasons he was so upset was because he knew it was one of his stronger races sure. we've had, that we've seen for a little while. So yeah, it will be interesting to see how long it is before he gets back up there. You know, obviously Charles had, had crashed out really early in that race. So he was really the only, he, well, he was the only Ferrari driver that was going to score points. So I think that was on his mind as well, you know, and um, yeah, I think not so much for Baku, but I just wonder, you know, is is that going to be kind of the story of science's season? You know, you look back at Australia and you're like, wow, yeah, he never really was up there again, you know, for, for a long, long time. So I think with science, you don't always get these opportunities. Um, I'm sure we'll have some good races again, but yeah, we'll see. Baku, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, his record in Baku, it's not, I don't think it's amazing. I mean, Charles, Charles is probably the stronger of the two there. So so we'll see coming into it. But I think I think the main thing with him was that a lot of the emotion was because was he was still in the car. You know, he was still in his overall, still in his race helmet, 
So I don't think I'm not sure whether that emotion will have carried on, but that'll be interesting. I think his his press conference on Thursday will be the most interesting one that we get because you know if if, if he's clearly still carrying some baggage, I feel like if I saw him in the sprint race, I'd I'd probably just give him a wide berth through every corner. Be like, right, this guy's gonna gonna be driving on the ragged edge a little bit. Yeah, maybe you know Carlos, if you want if you want a few extra points, go get him. Um, I'll sit back. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. 10 seconds on the clock. How many things can you name that are always growing? Your relationships, your skills, your customer base. How about businesses on Shopify? <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash network, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash network now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash network. Something else that hit the airwaves uh, was Christian Horner and Red Bull making some positive comments about uh, yours truly, Daniel Ricardo. He believes that Ricardo is getting his mojo back uh, after returning to Red Bull this year, and he's confirmed uh, that the eight-time Grand Prix winner is set to test for the team later this year. Mojo. And obviously, I know, Nate, that you you know Daniel well. What do you think Christian Horner means when he says he's getting his mojo back? I think he's been watching Austin Powers because there's a movie, <laughs> isn't there? And Austin Powers about his mojo. I'm not sure if that's quite the same mojo he's talking about. I hope um, not. But I think that I think I think it it all comes back down to kind of the big reason, the big kind of question mark around Ricardo for the last few years, right? Which was what happened to the Ricardo of 2018, 2017, especially when you're in Christian Horner's shoes, because the Ricardo that last worked at Red Bull was he was a beast. You know, he he in certain points, in certain races, if there was a sniff of victory, the guy you kind of wanted in those situations often was Ricardo. A lot of his wins, he kind of you know he kind of came from nowhere, came through the field. And would win races, um, and then obviously Renault. He had some, he had some really good, good stints there. But McLaren, other than Monza, if you take Monza where he won away, it was just baffling. No one really understood why he 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 wasn't the same guy, why he wasn't able to fight with Lando. And there's been some interesting comments Horner's made as well, where he said that as soon as they got him in the simulator, they realised he'd picked up habits since leaving Red Bull that he didn't have when. He was at the team. So, you know, whether that's a driving style technique, whether it's whether it's the way he feeds back information, you know, he didn't go into too much detail. But I think what he means, you know, specifically about Mojo is there's clearly something that went missing for for Danny Rick over the past two seasons, especially last year. You know, it got it got way it just got worse and worse and worse last season from the first race. Um, and I th- I think that a lot of that, I, I think what most people read when they see that is confidence. You know, he he's always been he's always been that happily, happy, bubbly kind of guy, but you do feel that last year at times it was it you know he was doing it in spite of not feeling that way not feeling that good about how things were so um 
and it did again we've talked about when we spoke to him in new york but he just he did just seem so much more at ease didn't he even even then and that was he had only had the new kit the new red bull kit for a month so interesting to hear that from horner and um i think as much as anything if you're another team boss on the grid you're probably hearing horner say that and i think that you know if, if ricardo doesn't end up racing for red bull which you know i i personally think's unlikely looking at it right now i think the biggest thing for ricardo he's going to be looking at it thinking i want to race again i want to race in formula 1 so comments like that, if you're another team boss, obviously Ricardo's going to test later this year. Um, mm-hmm. You're going to look at that and say, well, if we're getting the Ricardo, you know, the 2018 spec Ricardo, the 2019 Ricardo, even even the Ricardo of 2020 in, in uh, uh, for Renault in that COVID season, you'll be happy about that. But what you don't want is you don't want to spend money on the Ricardo we saw, kind of the damaged goods Ricardo, if you want to say that, you know, where clearly there just wasn't something, something wasn't clicking. So interesting to see that. And I, I think it is fascinating as well because the whole question mark around Ricardo is how close is he to actually racing for Red Bull? Obviously, something needs to happen to Perez or to Max to step in if if he were to step in. Um, but the fact that Horn is saying that, it, it suggests that they would be happy right now if they needed him to turn to him, which I think is a big statement. Um, sure. So, and I think it'd be good. It's good news to F1 fans as well because he's, you know, he's such a popular guy. And I do feel like F1's been a bit, you know, there's, it, it, it's been, it's been, I think his absence has been felt. I don't know if you both agree with that, but I feel like it, you know, I know he's been around, but he's not really been as present as obviously in previous years. Certainly from a personality standpoint, but let's go down this rabbit hole because this is obviously a episode of exercises. Lawrence, based on the drivers that we currently have on the grid and their current contracts, where could we see Daniel Ricardo return if say it was going to happen next season? There are many options at the top teams. Um, so if you look at Mercedes, we're kind of assuming that Lewis is going to sign a contract going forward. Um, and that would, yeah, mean that they've got two drivers. Ferrari have two drivers under contract, Science and Leclerc, uh, Red Bull obviously do. Uh, then we look at McLaren, what he's not going back there. Aston Martin, uh, Fernando's under contract for at least another year after that. Lance Stroll, we discussed earlier. Um, where else can we go? Alpine, well, they had an option last year if they wanted to, they could have pursued him and they didn't. They signed up Pierre Gasly and Esteban Ocon and despite the two of them crashing in Australia, I think they're pretty pretty impressed with what Pierre's been able to do and Esteban's uh, been a kind of long-term prospect of theirs. So then we start going much further down the grid and you get to, well, Alpha Tauri, um, you know, that's a junior Red Bull team, doesn't make a huge amount of sense for Daniel to end up back there because again, I think, you know, had he really wanted to make that happen this year, he could have. Uh Haas, yeah, you know, I mean, possibly. Uh there's, you know, there's there's a possibility there if either Kevin or Nico um have a bad season or, you know, decide at the end of it that, you know, they they, they actually quite like being away from F1, mm-hmm. then Daniel could slot back in there. But again, Daniel had the opportunity to have conversations with Gunter uh and apparently <laughs> didn't pick up his phone. So um, didn't reply to messages or whatever the story was. So it's it, it's not looking great, but it it's never as simple as that. You know, the mm-hmm. if you look at Checo um, before he went to Red Bull, where he was at Force India, won a race in uh, Sakir in, in an unfancy car, and then opened the door for himself. You know, to um, to to get that Red Bull drive um, when they looked to uh, get rid of Alex Albon. So you know these. The, these things do happen. They, they they do turn around, and I think right now um, it's quite hard to speculate on where he would be. But um, I I actually was in the interview. There was, there was three of us talking to Daniel uh, on the Thursday in Australia, where he said that he you know the signs are pointing towards him wanting to go back 
to mm-hmm. um, to a Formula One drive. And while it's a question that we all had on our notebooks ready to ask, he was the one that brought it up. You know, we we said we had thirty minutes with Daniel, so you know, we were just kind of asking him stuff about you know how it's going, what he's getting up to, and all that kind of stuff. And he was the guy that brought up. No, by the way, uh, all the signs are pointing towards it. I, I want to make it happen. So that will be the big question. How much does he want to make it happen? How far is he willing to go down the grid to make it happen? In that interview, he suggested not that far down the grid. His his ambitions haven't changed. He still wants to be in a car that can uh, compete for podiums, wins uh, eventually, and certainly be um, top half of the grid. So it's going to be tricky, but... I think yeah he 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 was putting it out there and and Nate you're absolutely right the other thing he mentioned was going in the simulator and basically realizing that oh you know in a good car this could be really good fun and uh, he's really really excited about getting in this year's Red Bull later this year to do some Pirelli tire testing which under normal circumstances the twenty drivers who drive week in week out really <laughs> don't care about the Pirelli tire testing unless they think they can gain some kind of advantage it's pretty much you know one of the things that they'd they'd do anything to get out of. i mean in previous years they have done that and probably had to put in some rules to make sure they actually had relevant drivers capable of pushing the cars hard enough for them to get decent tire data back um but yeah daniel is, is definitely capable of that and he is so excited about getting in that car because he's basically going to be getting into one of the best formula one cars arguably ever but certainly over the last kind of 10 um, 20 years or so and uh the chance to wring its neck and really find out what he's got in him away from all the handling traits that the mclaren had that he didn't like couldn't click with couldn't get himself around to he's going to get back in a red ball that has all the things that he wants and he'll have some idea of how close he is to check over max and those are some very um good yard posts to measure yourself against it's going to be so telling, right? And there's going to be a lot of pressure, I feel like, that comes with that day because that's your opportunity to tell other teams, I've still got it in the right machinery. And if he falters, then I think, as you put it, Nate, people are going to say, yeah, I'm going to steer clear of possibly damaged goods. So I think that day is going to be unbelievably telling for Daniel Ricciardo and his future in the sport. Yeah, big time. And um, I mean, you know, I hope it goes well for him because I think he sure. can come back and do and do well. Um, but I think Lawrence is right. And every indication I've ever had from speaking to Ricardo or people close to him is that, you know, really, if looking at it now, I think I actually have more and more respect the more you think about it, that Ricardo could have really pursued a seat at a at, at quote unquote lower team down the grid. And it was clear that he was like, unless I'm going to a better car, like Lawrence said, he didn't want it. So I think that ultimately is going to be, that's going to be what decides it. And I I wonder if, if he sits out for another year waiting for a big seat, you wonder how long you know. The, will those teams even go to Daniel if 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 he's had another year out? So you do feel like the window's closing, but like as last year showed, an F one drive market is so difficult to predict. You know, one minute you one minute everything looks like it's fine, and then Vettel retires and Alonso's at Aston, and you're like, okay, what's going on? So anything can happen, anything could open up, and we don't know what things will look like. So um, yeah, he's put himself in a good spot, and I think that you know six months ago even a lot of people were second guessing his decision to sit out. So mm-hmm. it's actually, it's turning out a lot differently to, I think to how a lot of people thought. And he deserves a lot of credit for that. Cause he's kind of the guy that's made that happen. Anything can happen. That's why we absolutely adore. This as, sport. as Murray Walker, the commentator used to say, or, or said once he said, anything can happen in formula one. And it usually does, <laughs> um, which is just a great quote. And that is where we'll end our show today. Well done, Nate. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, 
Like this video, leave us a comment, and don't forget to subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content. And if you're listening, hit us with a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. Both of you, thank you so much. Lawrence, safe travels to Baku. We will touch base with you next week when we finally have a race. Cheers. Cheers.